0: and we are live so today's episode is going to be different because as you can hear i'm not speaking in my native language we are going full international today and on today's podcast we have a man who is uh let's put it mildly uh famous and well known in worldwide fitness community uh his name is alan aragon who would have thought that I would get this guy on my podcast? So uh, welcome, Alan.
1: Seem, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your show, which um, I know that you're an international man of mystery. So I think it's totally appropriate that you know, we've got me on. So thank you again.
0: Well, I'm using you to get there. So let's hope <laughs> that you are one of the, uh, the, the major steps you know, to, to get me there. But uh, before I, we start, you know, again, thank you. And also just for you to know that uh, on the behalf of the whole Estonian fitness community, who is uh, even widely science-based, you know, everybody's looking up to you here. And as well as I have held different lectures about nutrition to trainers, uh, then I have mostly or there has been a large part that I have used your material as well with, of, co- with, with of course, reference to you. But uh I have dug in your stuff, man, and uh, uh, it's an honor it's a, it is an honor
1: to hear that you know there's a, <laughs> you know you do this thing for like a couple decades and then that's what you do it for. you know you, you, you want to know that you had some kind of influence and some kind of reach in into the community, man. so it's great to hear that.: Yeah,
0: you have definitely succeeded in that so so many many even hundreds of people are looking up to you here in our fit, in our little fitness community. I'd love uh, to
1: visit. I'd love to visit. I've, I've never, I don't know anything about Estonian culture, but I am I, I have a double doctorate in eating things. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if, if there's food in Estonia, I'd love to go there, man.
0: Oh, that would be, that, that'd be something. You know, to taste the traditional Estonian dish, dish would be equivalent for a PhD defense probably. So it's not going to be an easy thing. And definitely <laughs> peculiar foods around here, especially for okay. for you over the Atlantic. But uh, but yeah. But have you ever been to Europe anyway?
1: I have. I, I've been um, several times.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Have you been to Finland? Finland, no.
0: Okay. Wait a minute.
1: Wait, no, let me think. Let me think. No, 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 not Finland.
0: Okay. Have you been to Scandinavia? I have. I've been to Norway. Okay, so we are not that far off. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Uh, A few hundred miles southeast but yeah i mean what would be the chances for you some someday get here but you know i will definitely i will definitely be at the airport waiting for you only a sign alan i'm I'm the guy who had you on podcast (laughs) some time ago
1: maybe in uh 2022 when the world isn't so screwed um you know we can get back to the live conference thing maybe you'll have to Hold a big conference you know and, and you. have have me and maybe maybe a, a bro or two of mine yeah and, uh, we okay. can whip, whip something up whip something uh something serious up there so who knows you never know
0: yeah it, it's would... always
1: fun I, mi- I miss the the whole uh travel thing been in lockdown over here for for so long so
0: yeah that would be a dream actually it could be rangeable from the estonian fitness federation but oh uh, sweet. sweet but yeah uh, okay, but, you know, about we're going to discuss uh, food today, obviously, and uh, uh, the structure of this podcast, I was thinking, you know, we probably don't have enough time to delve deep into niche topics and really, you know, topics, uh, for example, to go really deep into a specific topic. So, therefore, I would just like to poke different topics. And perhaps one of the main, uh, main goals of this uh, episode would be to be able to... Are some myths as well that have uh, that have arised uh, in recent years and even today but you know in order to break the ice at the very beginning then uh, may I ask what did Alan Aragon have for breakfast today? <laughs> you picked the wrong day man <laughs>
1: oh bro okay I'm, I'm gonna be dead honest I, I, uh, I just woke up <laughs> Really, <laughs> I just woke up. So all I've had in, in all honesty, my man is, um, coffee with honey and, um, cocoa powder and half and half. So that's, that's all I had. Normally I would have had like a S load of protein, but, okay. um, I I stayed up till like four a.m. last night, my man, and so I'm gonna be dead as honest with you. This is not a representative day.
0: <laughs> Aren't you afraid to go getabolic uh,
1: No, no. I, I I just figured I would run on on pure adrenaline for for this podcast, and oh. I figured why, why bother? I saw I saw pictures of you, and I figured why why bother with this. Sh- <laughs>
0: okay okay so alan has had no protein this morning so uh, (laughs) oh that's it just career ending podcast episode right here oh well (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, you had coffee i i myself up i had this special nootropic formula that has you know this long of a list of stuff inside it so Mm. so i'm feeling good man and uh (laughs) if it's not working then you know at least the placebo will do its own work so, Absolutely. I, so, I just have a minor amount
1: of carbs and fat floating around and caffeine. So, so yeah. I'll, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll be okay for this for the length of this podcast. Yeah, and then the, I'll start crashing. Yeah,
0: you know, the glycogen romance in your liver are probably, you know, the last reserves are <laughs> kicking out. So I'm, I'm tapping them out, man. I hope you don't go hype during this podcast. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. But, you know, before we go deeper into the actual nutrition, then, you know, I think it would be only reasonable and honest to promote your book as well. So what I have seen, there's a book coming out from you called Protein. So most people who are listening to this, especially the Lothan community here, I think, you know, reasonable amount of them might not know about this book. So why don't you uh, briefly open the contents of that book well obviously it's about protein but yeah you know you know maybe it's a little bit provocative question but how much can we actually talk about protein anymore these days and you know what could be the points that uh, that uh, might arise from your book that might bring something new uh to the table
1: well there's a lot of mythology around protein and um, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of confusion because there's a lot of old, outdated um, guidelines and, and data that that just persist uh, through the media and even through the academic literature, and so it, it is kind of a frustrating thing. And so that's why I wrote this book so I could cover um, all of the questions that I'm I'm personally interested in, and these questions have been asked more frequently than. You know, most other questions. Protein is is a very hot topic
0: mm-hmm. in the
1: fitness realm, and and it always remains that way. And because everybody's, I guess, interested in protein, everybody has some sort of opinion on it. And with everyone spouting off their opinions, there's no shortage of uh, false information floating around. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this book that I wrote. Uh, let's see, I, I just popped open the, the file. I'm forgetting how many chapters it has. So. Each chapter is a question that I answer. And there are 26 chapters, so 26 uh, burning questions about protein. And Mm -hmm. it was fun writing the book, you know, Uh, uh, if you're a true bro, then um, you'll enjoy the protein book.
0: Mm hmm. You mentioned you mentioned myths and misunderstandings that that, mm. that tend to bother you. So if you if you if you could give me an example, what, what's the myth that uh, bothers you the most in in uh, in you know common world, but also in the scientific literature?
1: In in the scientific literature, there has been a resistance toward recommending protein above the in quotes the official. RDA Mm -hmm. levels. And so with the RDA being 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, uh, that is, (laughs) um, that, that was established in right around a little bit before 1980. And it was based on a methodology called nitrogen balance. And that's a really crude proxy for, uh, estimating bodily protein status. And it was also done in uh, sedentary individuals on top of using the nitrogen balance method. And so the guideline, the the RDA guideline, it has limited application. So uh, it basically ignores physically active individuals and it ignores individuals engaged in um, any sort of hypocaloric condition or dieting condition. Mm -hmm. And it certainly completely ignores dieting, physically active individuals. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course it ignores the goal of of people trying to get bigger lean mass wise. So there are very large and important populations that the RDA recommendation does not apply to. Uh, So so that's one of the frustrating things is when people go, oh, you know, you're consuming two or three times more protein than you need. Look at the RDA, and, and that's surprisingly common, even forty years after the thing was uh, established and, and, and outdated.
0: Why do you think it still persists?
1: Uh, there are certain factions of, of, uh, of folks who, for whom it's it's not terribly convenient to get a lot of protein. And so they'll latch on to the idea that you don't need much protein. All you need is a 56 grams a day as a a man and a 40-something as a woman. Um, (laughs) There are certain guilty populations like that. Uh, I don't want to attack vegans right off the bat, but um, (laughs) there's uh, the plant-based factions within the plant-based community who really latch on the RDA because um, some of them may not want to supplement their diet with protein powder or do what it takes to get the higher protein plant foods in there. And, um, there's, there's a convenience factor there. There's some economic costs to, um, optimizing protein levels as well. And so people can tend to be resistant towards it. And then there's just the nature of humans and, and their, their unwillingness to change. And the RDA has been just rammed down people's throats for so long that, it's just hard to change. In fact, um, the Academy of of, uh, Nutrition and Dietetics, they they took a solid 10 years to raise their upper end protein intake recommendation past 1.7 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my dietetics colleagues would, you know, they're taught to follow the position stands and the position stand cuts off at 1.7. So when um, the recommendations to go full 2.2 grams per kilo were being floated around. They're like, oh, what's going on here? It's passing 1.7, oh crap, what's going on? And so (laughs) there's different levels of of resistance uh, to protein intake uh, increases in various Mm -hmm. communities. And so I just wanted to present and discuss some of this research and and some of the evidence showing that uh, we need to open our minds a little bit if we wanna optimize Things like body composition and dieting conditions, and and also uh, athletic performance.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 notion of the protein requirement 0. 0.8 uh, per kilogram. Uh, well, I I think most people who follow the literature and are even even vaguely up to date with uh, with nutrition and training, they would agree that uh, uh, this number represents the lower end, the minimum that you need, you know, or like. Or, or the number that's uh, that is actually the, the the low point, the minimum. So, but you know, people tend to misinterpret this, you know, of how much you need, not what what not what is optimal. So mm-hmm. I, you, and you know, it also should should depend on the fact that you know, as you said, how active you are, and if you want to optimize body composition. So we can we probably you can correct me, but uh, the protein requirement uh, number is basically a spectrum. Could we say that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but what are your thoughts on the upper range so basically you said it's one point eight grams or sorry one point seven grams and so there's like literature saying uh, one point eight I have also discussed with my colleagues who, who of one of them actually is strongly uh, for the idea that uh, one point eight grams is the upper limit and you know past that you actually don't need a single speck of protein anymore because it's basically useless or the, or or anything of a sort. So, if you are going to comment this, you know, two grams per body weight uh, of kilogram, or two point two, or even past that, uh, what is your take on the high end of the protein uh, distribution?
1: Well, there's there was a time when we believed that one point eight grams per kilogram could be the the in quotes the limit, mm-hmm. but uh, there has been some newer research with um, some potentially more sensitive methodology, the uh, indicator amino acid oxidation method, for example, uh, looking at um, what happens uh, or, or what it takes to achieve balance of, of oxidation and incorporation into tissues and where is that breakpoint? And um, that has exceeded the, uh, the, the 2.2 mark when we look at the, um, upper 95% confidence level. So when we look at, um, and when we make claims about, okay, it will never reach this high end. We have to realize that there are there's a wide range of individual responses. And so if we put a hard line at 1.8, then we're ignoring the people who fall above the, or far above the mean, as far Mm -hmm. as these, uh, these figures go. Because in research, what's reported is is the average, the, the mean value of, of this mixed bag of responses. And so some subjects will be fall below the mean, some subjects will fall above the mean. And so um, if we just look at the mean as gospel, 1.8 as gospel, then you might have some superstars here, just you know a small handful, kicking ass and optimizing at 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, but we tell them, not, no, you just can't. It's 1.8, I'm sorry. Um, that, <laughs> that's just not true. And, um, <clears throat> and even if it were true that there is a magical 1.8 grams per kilogram limit that you cannot put on any further uh, muscle muscle tissue be, uh, beyond that amount. Well, in certain populations, there are effects such as satiety, appetite control, craving control that have uh, been seen at um, towards three grams per kilogram of body weight compared to 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. So uh, that fits in really well with the uh, dieting population uh, in the athletic realm, such as bodybuilding or various sports where athletes run hypochloric conditions to either make weight, uh, make a weight class. Uh, etc. And, and so craving control, hunger control, if that, want, if that is important to be optimized, then you would be compromising your capability to do that if you have this hard rule in your mind of like 1.8, that's it. So that's but just how, some of it.
0: But how can one uh, determine the, the, the sweet spot of, uh, of protein uh, quantity to consume throughout the day? For example, uh, basically trial and error to see on Mm -hmm. during, during a certain period of time, how the results are, or what, what, what recommendation or advice would you give, you know, for, for individuals to find their own, uh, requirements?
1: It begins with the goal. So, Mm -hmm. um, there's a different, there's a range of goals that, that, um, encompass these protein requirements. And so if we were to take um, just some basic categories of goals, like either muscle retention or muscle gain, those can tend to have uh, slightly different rules. So for the goal of muscle retention during severe dieting, I would tend to err on the higher side of Mm -hmm. of the recommendation range. And so we can kind of look at an in quotes magic range of protein intake as 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram for most athletic goals. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, for people who are, uh, for athletic folks who are dieting or going for weight loss or fat loss. So they're going to be in hypocaloric conditions. Then, um, depending on their level of competition. It might be less risky to push a little bit more towards the two point two end than the one point six end. And so, if somebody is just maintaining, uh, and or if they want to try to, they want to try to gain, or they want to try to, uh, uh, there's there's no major threat towards muscle loss. Then you have a little bit more leeway to investigate lower intakes and see how that might work for you still. So you can play around with the 1.6. And if that works, stick with that for a while until it doesn't work. Uh, and then you have the, you have a justification for ratcheting it up towards the 2.2. 2. Um, but yeah, for, for conditions where there is a more of a physiological threat to lean
0: mass status, mm-hmm
1: then it, I would error on the higher side.
0: Okay, just to be sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, what, is, what is the highest quantity of uh, protein consumption in the study that you have seen?
1: The highest that I've seen, I would say, well, what immediately comes to mind is um, by Eric Helms and colleagues where the upper range that they found to be effective, and this was for relatively lean subjects in dieting conditions, was 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've got that figure to refer to. Um, Actually, a higher figure that I've seen was in an observational study by Andrew Chappelle and colleagues. And that figure was, I believe 3.3, I wanna say 3.3 or 3.5. We'll, we'll say 3.3 to be conservative, uh, mm-hmm. grams per kilogram of body weight in competitors, these uh, natural bodybuilding competitors who placed in the top five. So that's an, that's an observation and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a cause and effect thing. But those are the figures that, that we're seeing in the literature that have uh, really kind of scraping the upper end there. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as personal observation in, in the field and anecdote and stuff, which is always fun and interesting, mm-hmm. um, one of the one of the best spec- specimens for uh, bodybuilding specimens, a natural dude um, who won a championship. I forgot what the heck the, the competition was, but he just took down four grams per kilogram mm-hmm. of body weight, protein-wise. And uh, he felt that that worked best for him personally. So mm-hmm. um, if we were to look at this range of evidence, we've got this upper range where, you know, you've got two, 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. That's pretty prevalent in the literature. And then you've got little smatterings of things above three grams per kilogram of body weight. And so, um, there's other literature too. That's mostly observational that looks at recomposition where, uh, there is a gain in lean mass and a loss in fat mass simultaneously. And that observational literature also converges close to three grams per kilogram of body weight. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I personally think there's enough evidence to, to say that, we can't necessarily hang on to this 1.8 limit that has been uh, latched onto and, and I guess, <laughs> preached to some degree as, as the ultimate limit.
0: So everything past three seems to be already pushing it mm-hmm. in that sense. So, so you know, just out of curiosity and fantasizing, uh, is there a reason that nobody has ever gone past that?
1: Mm. Um. It that's be, a good it, question, man.
0: It would not be a case study anymore. It would be a fart study, then, perhaps.
1: <laughs> it would be a toxic waste study. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's a good question. There, there's uh, limits of uh, feasibility, and there's logistical limits to, to uh, protein intakes um, that you can force feed subjects. Um, what comes to mind is research by Jose Antonio and colleagues where they had subjects taken over four grams per kilogram of body weight like i believe it was 4.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight and uh speaking to him in, in at conferences he relayed to me that subjects expressed great difficulty in maintaining that level of intake because mm-hmm. it was an eight-week study and they were assigned to, to eat basically double their body weight in pounds um, of protein. So, you know, you, you, look at 300 grams of protein a day, over 300 grams of protein a day. Uh, it's difficult for, for people to, to, to stomach it. And, and who knows, may, maybe there was some, uh, some gastrointestinal issues going on and, or maybe just like when the paint starts peeling off your walls from the protein farts, I think that, that people have a tough time with that.
0: Yeah. Uh, bcas are bcas dead
1: <laughs> i would say so <laughs>
0: i would say so
1: okay uh, ever, ever since we put out that paper uh daniel plotkin myself and and uh saint bradley uh, we, we did a paper this was headed by daniel plotkin and just reviewing the literature branch chain amino acids or the addition of leucine to sufficient protein intakes. And when I say sufficient, it's typically 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. So when branch chain amino acids are supplemented on top of that, Mm -hmm. they consistently have not shown any effectiveness for adding lean mass and or uh, strength to Mm -hmm. subjects. So it's just a consistent observation of, uh, a lack of effect. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, save your money, just buy a steak.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, theoretically, they probably would work in isolation if somebody was to consume, you know, maybe 30 grams of BCAs that might have some sort of an effect because it's still protein or the building blocks of protein mm-hmm. at the end of the day. But, uh, uh, when we talk about the uh, different sources of protein or the quality of the protein or the uh, the um, amino acid profile that make up the proteins for example mm, uh, vegans uh, i'm not you know necessarily referring to vegans but using them as an example of mm-hmm. uh, uh, let's say unorthodox uh, uh, sources of protein and the amino acid profile so for example Theoretically, if a vegan was to supplement uh, his or her diet with BCAs, would this have some sort of an impact or not? Um,
1: it could have a slight benefit. It could have a slight benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with vegans, we also have to remember that uh, it's not just the, the the branch chain amino acids or, or leucine in particular that they fall short on. Mm-hmm. Um they're falling short on things like uh, tryptophan, lysine, methionine, um, and and so, so
0: all of the essential amino acids basically. Yeah. yeah, so they're
1: much they're much better off taking a, a full spectrum essential amino acid than just uh, the branch chain amino acids. Or,
0: yeah. <laughs> so so basically, what they need is EAA's and you know BCA's. It turns out are not good enough even for a vegan.
1: That's right. That's wow. right, and even some non-essential um, amino acids that they they're missing out on are some conditionally essential ones. They they're missing out on that too. <laughs> True, but so um, so yeah, I I would definitely uh, if now here here's the the wrinkle in the whole conversation. There there's recent research showing that vegans consuming one point six grams per kilogram of body weight compared with omnivores consuming the same amount, uh, gained the same amount of muscle, and I believe strength as well, uh, in a direct comparison of resistance trainees. So that's Mm -hmm. some breaking research. So they didn't necessarily supplement their diet with uh, individual amino acids, whether it be branched-chain amino acids or essential amino acids, but they did supplement their diet with protein powder, I believe, some plant-based protein powder. I think it was soy protein that they soy boy protein that they relied on and Hmm. they did just as well as the the omnivores um but with research like this uh, when they call people trained subjects they they label them trained if they've been training for a year six months you know okay um so trained subjects in quotes is very different from athletic subjects or advanced or highly trained subjects So you can call somebody trained if they've been dicking around for six months.
0: (laughs) But basically gram for gram, than vegans, it is not justified for them to to have uh, a higher protein intake when compared to omnivores.
1: Gram for gram, omnivores still have an advantage. Yes. They still have an advantage. Yes. And so... That's why, I, you know, this new study that showed that they are on a level playing field, as long as you eat 1.6 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight, I would still keep my skepticism up for um, more specific, maybe bodybuilding or strength oriented goals and more advanced subjects. Because with, with that scenario, you may have to push limits a little bit more by either raising the total protein up or supplementing the diet and making it more optimal for those goals. So um, I'm not sure if they, they uh, tested out a, a, a fair comparison that would represent more advanced subjects. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so about protein now, proteins in the box and BCAs mm-hmm. are in a trash can now. Uh, time yes. to move on to carbs and yep. fats. So uh, uh, I think I read the, this from you, but uh, basically what you would need is an optimum, optimal quantity of protein throughout the day and you have to make sure to hit the minimum uh, needs of fats. And the rest basically you can play around with uh, mm-hmm. uh, more to the carb side or to the fat side. So is there any actual difference for example if to you know break this uh, into piece by piece really easy we take two twins and one of the twins opts more for the fat side to to fill out his calories and the other twin goes for the for the carb side mm. so would we see any actual difference as far as body composition and performance or not it would take mm. out the if, if we take out the all the individual differences and so on so to put it really simplistically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Of course, I'll find a way to complicate this answer, man. So get you know. Yeah. <laughs> don't. You don't go, worry. You go for it, man. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> um, if these twins are involved with performance, with athletic performance activities and athletic performance goals mm-hmm. that involve uh, high intensity work like, um, higher higher intensity glycolytic type of work, whether it's, um, sprinting type of work, whether it's mixed sports, uh, type of work, then the twin consuming a greater proportion of carbohydrate will meet his goals more optimally. Um, now, there, there is a body of literature comparing ketogenic diets with non keto, with, with standard control diets, high carb, low fat, on maximal strength. And surprisingly, there, there hasn't consistently been an advantage for maximal strength um, goals for, for the uh, control diet as the keto diet was able to keep up. Um, but I think that over time for like a, like a full year training cycle in advanced guys with a lot of volume going on, I think you'd you'd begin to see disadvantages with the keto diet compared to the higher carb control. So, um, and especially if, if you're mixing the spectrum of, of strength and endurance type of activities, which are um, the case in a lot of mixed sports that have intervals of higher intensity, moderate intensity, and they're all mixed together. Team sports, for example. And uh, I think that the, the, if the twins are involved in that, then the, the lower carb ones are, or if one, one twin is going full keto, he's going to have a compromised work capacity.
0: Mm-hmm. But more followers on Instagram.
1: True, <laughs> and and maybe and maybe more uh, revenues from from selling the
0: exogenous ketones. Oh yeah, that thing. Uh, but you know, <laughs> back to the carbs. Back to the carbs. Uh, about carb timing. For example, how. Important of a role does carb timing play in that sense? For example, if you time your carbs around the workouts—pre-workout, mm-hmm. post-workout—versus, uh, for example, if somebody is to consume majority of the carb uh, uh, daily carbs, for example, pre-bed, would mm-hmm. uh, would uh, suboptimal uh, carb consumption in some way compromise uh, body composition goals?
1: I, for body composition, I would, I I wouldn't necessarily say it would. Mm -hmm. Um, but the contingency there is if, um, if most training bouts that approach or exceed 90 minutes of continuous work end up getting compromised if, if they're, um, if they, if, if the availability of carbohydrate is not there. So Mm -hmm. even if you were to consume a big ass carb meal the night before, Mm -hmm. um, and you were to train in the morning, if your training session starts crossing over, starts approaching ninety minutes of continuous exhaustive work, and certainly starts reaching two hours, then um, your performance towards the uh, ending part of that bout could be compromised if you did not consume immediate pre or um, institute a during training carb protocol mm-hmm. and so um, body composition you know uh, if, if, if your performance capacity is compromised and, and you you're running very high volume, then the guy doing this high volume thing and kicking ass through it could potentially have better body composition than the next guy but just for very general purposes, um, I don't I don't necessarily think that uh, you can say that high high carb versus low carb or undercarbing could significantly uh, I- negatively impact people's body composition goals because a lot of folks who, with body composition uh, changes as a priority they're not necessarily pushing those 90 120 minute workouts
0: mm-hmm. so what about what about the type of carbs so if we if we again use the pre-bed example mm. uh let's say for example it doesn't matter let's say 75 percent of your daily carbs you consume pre-bed but that's but the glycemic index differs for example somebody eats a big ass cake before bed the other one you know goes for more starchy carb uh would there be any difference in nutrition partitioning for example uh for example, the one who is consuming uh, higher glycemic index carbs would store more fats, uh, or that is not the case.
1: Yeah, that that and that's an interesting question, and that has been looked at and that has been compared. Mm-hmm. And um, to the the surprise of some, there is no difference. There is no difference because it's just a matter of the time course of um, appearance in the blood and and storage in, in glycogen and, and also uh, oxidation. It, it's just a different a different curve. You have high GI going like this and you have mm-hmm. low GI going like this. Mm-hmm. But the actual difference between the storage of glycogen and the oxidation of carbohydrate for whatever fueling purposes, um, that's all the same. So what, what ends up happening is there's, there's no difference between the high GI treatment and the low GI treatment when you look at storage in the adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. So, um, they technically they'll, they'll actually, they'll store the same amount of, of glycogen. It just takes a longer amount of time for the lower uh, GI treatment to, to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And so by the, the end of the day, by 24 hours, it's all the same, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, carbohydrate balance and, uh, in terms of fat balance as well, as far as Mm -hmm. storage and oxidation goes. So the research showing an advantage of lower, lower glycemic index carbs on, uh, fat storage, the research showing an advantage of, of that, it, doesn't match macronutrition, total macronutrition between the diets. So there there is an unfortunate body of literature comparing high GI um, carbohydrate diets with low GI carbohydrate uh, diets, and they don't match protein. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of them don't match fiber either. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't match protein, then you don't match satiating capacity, you don't match thermic effect, and you don't mat- match the capability of the diets to uh, retain muscle tissue. Mm-hmm. And so um, thankfully, the, there were some astute researchers that noticed these methodological shortcomings. And so they matched protein between the diets and um, some of them even matched protein and fiber. And they just varied the glycemic index Of the different carbohydrate sources in, in the diets. So Mm -hmm. high GI, low GI, same protein, no difference in, uh, fat storage, no difference in body composition. And Mm -hmm. so it, it really is, um, really was, was kind of a watershed moment when enough researchers saw this shortcoming in GI research and, um, you know that that makes glycemic index one of the things that we can just about toss in the in the trash and not necessarily give give a crap about as far as body composition goes
0: okay so twinkies pretty bad you go for it man <laughs> <laughs> twinkies, uh, but yeah but i mean uh, you know the third the third you know the macronutrient uh, fats uh the thing with fats that i would like to ask is that of course um the more fat you consume uh the more higher chance there is to consume saturated fat as well mm-hmm. so if somebody is to opt for more for the fat side tends to fill out his or her calories with fats uh would this person be in a higher risk of um uh, exceeding the recommended limits of saturated fats and thus, uh, in some way, again, compromising, you know, overall health uh, or, or something of a sort. Kind
1: of. Yeah. Um, that man, that's a tough one because, um, saturated fats are a kind of a diverse group in terms of health impacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not all saturated fats are created equal in their capacity to negatively impact health. Some saturated fats have actually shown neutral to positive effects on health. And um, that boils down to chocolate and cheese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <So, laughs> um, If you're a dark dark chocolate and and cheese eater, you're gonna be eating a lot of saturated fat, but the evidence as it stands today doesn't very effectively uh, prosecute dark chocolate and cheese saturated fat. And and those are significant sources of saturated fat in some people's diets. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it can kind of depend on, on your saturated fat intake. Uh, also, uh, a potential third food that's high in saturated fat, but um, not necessarily a dangerous thing, and, and potentially there could be a helpful thing, is, is extra virgin coconut oil. Mm-hmm. So coconut oil gets a lot of bashing from the American Heart Association, and it's gotten some bashing in, in their, their, their peer-reviewed journal um, circulation. But... Fact of the matter is they're not discriminating between um, processed or refined coconut oil that's been um, hydrogenated in some cases versus the extra virgin coconut oil, which is a bit more in its uh, native state and has shown in at least four out of five studies to keep LDL stable while raising HDL. Mm -hmm. So it can be argued that that is a biologically neutral effect and potentially beneficial if you like HDL. So the lipidologists now are really, especially the vegan ones, they're really mad at any kind of (laughs) lipid going up, (laughs) even HDL, they want to, they want to kill HDL now. So, um, but, but yeah, there, there are some nuances to the, the saturated fat question.
0: Mm-hmm. Even when you use it uh, to fry something, then 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 basically, it's no problem. It can withstand the high temperatures and not change its uh, chemical composition. So you're good to go with the co- extra virgin coconut oil.
1: Sure, more more stable, so mm-hmm. more, Taste- more more stable against oxidation and things that that the lipidologists are scared of. Well, it tastes good as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of coconut oil. I want to put it on everything.
0: Yeah, just don't mix it in the coffee, man. <laughs>
1: I've done it. <laughs> okay. I've done it. Don't tell anyone. I've, I've put it in my coffee for a while. I tried that.
0: Uh, I, I got I got tired of it, though. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, another thing, calories. Now, if, if we go on a bigger scale about calories, Uh, well, tell me this. Why is uh, the calories in, calories out concept being challenged by so many charlatans in these days? What is their argument?
1: Well, the people who tend to dismiss the energy balance model, they have uh, an emotional attachment to insulin and, Mm -hmm. and the hypotheses put forth by highly imaginative individuals. And I don't really know that the root of why, um, people get emotionally attached to such an oversimplistic and, and poorly supported hypothesis, but, um, they just do, (laughs) you know, people like, uh, Gary Taubes has, has, has built a, a writing career around insulin being the bad guy and carbohydrates being the bad guy. And then other people um, follow suit. You know, Gary, Gary Taubes is a—he was a real influencer. <laughs> he influenced people like uh, Jason Fung and, and and David Ludwig and and folks in the you know the clinical and the academic area. He, Taubes actually influenced them, so um, that's that's really uh, remarkable. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Given basic. that the evidence, so the, the evidence doesn't support the, these ideas, but hey, you know. You got so, influence
0: I, I guess you get some kind of credit so it is actually possible to inf- infiltrate uh, into a scientific committee community and taint it from inside absolutely and you don't even have to be a scientist for crying out
1: loud to do this you know you just have to have the charm of, of gary that's wow. it. that's all you need
0: wow be a good okay. writer <laughs> mm, okay uh th- You know this goes well along with calories or or how we tend to fill our calories or what foods we tend to choose. Now the observation that I have made uh, in recent years, whenever you know if it fits your macros came to the scene, uh, then what I noticed and many people actually were confused of the if it fits your macros concept is that uh, people who followed if it if it fits your macros idea, what they did at least in my eyes is whenever they had a treat. Or they were using, you know, let's put it blatantly, uh, junk food. They Mm -hmm. always made a picture about this uh, junk food or an Instagram story and so on. (laughs) And, you know, told, yay, it it fits my macros. At least my calories (laughs) are, you know, counted. I'm all good. But what I felt is like uh, the people who weren't on the IFFYM train, uh, they had the misunderstanding that, you know, basically you can eat everything as, as long as you fill out your calories, which is actually not the case, is it? For example, if you only tend to fill out your calories with, uh, I don't know, McDonald's or five chocolate bars a day, it is definitely not optimal. So I think uh, what happened with with uh, FIM is that uh, people did not represent or reflect the actual picture of their everyday nutrition, but they only put forth, you know, treats and, and shitty foods, uh, to show that, you know, they are flexible, but in a sense, I think, could it be the case that they, they sort of, uh, didn't, did not mention that, you know, most of the time you still have to, you know, whether it's like eat clean or eat satiating foods, uh, with the uh, low energy dense density. What is your take yeah. on that?
1: Yeah. That, that, uh, the IIFYM thing got, was an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't know that it originated as a as a as a joke on the bodybuilding.com forums <laughs> you know they they uh, they think it's a uh, it, it's an actual diet that that um, you're supposed to be proud of fulfilling your protein carbs and fats with pop tarts and 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 whey and and who knows butter <laughs> fish oil <laughs> I don't know fish oil capsules <clears throat> so um yeah, it, it was an interesting story with that whole I I F Y M thing, but if you take it to its extremes and just fulfill all your carbs with refined junk and let's just you know, look at look at that aspect of it, then in the long term there's an opportunity cost. So you could have fulfilled your carb allotment with food choices that are known to prevent chronic disease, um, chronic diseases, and you can also um, compromise the diet's ability to satiate you or control appetite. And so this can sabotage dieting efforts if somebody thinks that they're, uh, let's say 200 grams of carbs allotment in the day can be fulfilled with just syrup or (laughs) jolly ranchers, you know, Mm -hmm. sour patch kids. And so uh, some people do have done it and they've done it successfully and that's great. But once again, there is the risk of compromised satiety. And then there is the opportunity cost of compromising long-term health and and disease prevention. If all you're going to do is, be consuming these micronutrient sparse energy dense highly refined foods and uh missing out on on the potential benefits of foods that would prevent like cancer heart disease etc mm-hmm. so um there are those things to think about when if you just want to hit your macros with whatever the hell you want and yeah there's some there's some risks to that crispy cream and whey with crispy <laughs> flavor <laughs> you know people have done that um but I, I don't know if i were to do IIFYM, i would go with the burger pizza and ice cream combo diet that that would that would be pretty pretty good i think okay. I, could, I think i could handle that mm-hmm.
0: uh you know as as we already mentioned uh if it fits your macros uh you know all the other diet religions so to speak for example if you you know keto vegan carnivore paleo i do not i don't even know if paleo is around anymore but but (laughs) but now we're all about carnivore and keto which are like the two titans battling around on instagram you know but uh but you know if we mention keto now uh well the, the the common knowledge is uh, is that energy balance dictates uh, whether w- where you will go no matter the the religion or the diet you follow but mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. talk about keto is there any actual benefit you know scientific wise in other areas that where keto can be implemented and there would be actually some sort of benefits from it <laughs>
1: clinically in in um, patients with neurological disorders um Patients with epilepsy, mm-hmm. uh, potential uh, Parkinson's disease, and I've heard some very bizarre uh, esoteric applications, like Navy SEALs, um, if you want to prevent uh, oxygen bubbles from from going up and getting you caught and shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think I, I, I think I heard somebody relayed that from uh, Dominic uh, Diagostino. But these are just some very fringe applications that, that almost never apply to people who are adopting keto, to the, to, to the broad population who is taking on keto as some sort of uh, universal solution or perceived universal solution. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just not necessary. <laughs> it's not necessarily effective either um even with diabetics even with type 2 diabetics who you might presume um would benefit more from keto than from mere um non-keto carb restriction the evidence just it doesn't point to that it doesn't Mm -hmm. point to that and even people who will point to the literature on the virta program uh, v-i-r-t-a The Verda program is really uh, directed towards type two diabetics and pre-diabetics and obese um, type two pre-diabetics or obese type two diabetics and obese pre-diabetic folks. Mm -hmm. That's who it's marketed towards the um, so-called metabolically compromised or metabolically unhealthy uh, folks who have a a lot of body weight to lose. Mm -hmm. Even that population. Okay, you can't necessarily say keto is it because look at the VERTA research. Well, the VERTA program involves constant monitoring and um, very close support from a community and a personal coach and um, an app. And you're paying $400 a month, and this helps with compliance. And so the Verda program is not the equivalent of somebody off the street saying, you know, I'm going to go keto. I'm going to try keto. I'm going to do it. You're looking at basically a, a multidisciplinary team, medical team helping you out and you're paying out the nose for it. So whenever you do that, of course, that's going to increase your chances of a program working. Mm-hmm. But um, when, pe- when people in the wild try keto on their own, what happens in, consistently in the literature is by the 12-month mark, they consume about two to three times more carbohydrate at the 12-month mark compared to their initial assignment. So if you have an initial assignment of a max of 50 grams of carbohydrate a day in the ketogenic group, at the 12-month mark, very reliably in the literature, you'll see 130, 150 grams consumed. Mm-hmm. Um, in the keto group, because they just start regressing towards the mean. And it's uh, it's not sustainable for the majority of the general audience. Sure, there's a very loud vocal minority who goes on Twitter and says, I've been keto for the last 50 million years. What are you talking about? It's doable for me. Okay, cool. Doable for you. Congratulations. You are not the general public. You're not the face of the majority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're in the squeaky minority, my friend, and congratulations. So that's, yeah, but that's the story with keto.
0: So it doesn't seem to be justified when a type two diabetic is uh, being prescribed uh, uh, keto, but uh, is there a difference between like somebody is being prescribed keto or, or a low carb diet? And could there be this uh, satiation comp- component there to it as well? So basically, if you only eat meat and veggies, then you might stay satiated for a long time. And if if you really are more to the big bone side, then it might might help you out in some case. So basically, if is this thing still justified for for diabetics?
1: The, there there's a couple of good um, systematic reviews and meta analyses that converge upon a limit of. 130 grams of carbs a day being most effective for the diabetic population. Mm -hmm. And there is uh, some elegant research done showing that right around 100 grams, 90 grams to 100 is kind of a sweet spot that works really well for this population. But once again, this is double the amount of carbs that would constitute true keto. Mm -hmm. So there is actually, yes, uh, um, some pretty strong evidence for low carb or carb restriction to a degree for this population. And it kind of cuts off at about 130 grams of mm-hmm. carbs a day.
0: Okay. Yeah. But, so, uh, so that's
1: a good thing you mentioned that. Cause I don't think I would have, <laughs> I would have just had people like thinking they can go eat 500 grams of carbs a day. If they're diabetic, and be fine. So.
0: Uh, okay. Uh, you know, two other big dudes in the game, vegans and carnivores uh we already mentioned vegans a bit but you can use Mm. vegans also as as a comparison when you give your take on carnivore uh what's up with carnivores do you do do you like condone this type of uh, behavioral movement and also i mean a big proponent for i I i'm not really sure if he's a proponent but you know I mean, Jordan Peterson with his mineral water, steak, and uh, and salt diet, uh, he really seems to um, believe in this thing, and you know, say that you know it helped to cure his autoimmune diseases and so on. So, if you were to give a uh, your take on on carnivore diet, so um, when I think you know low fiber, high saturated fats, that might be the most optimal thing for you. But uh, even though would there be any actual benefits to carnivore diet?
1: I would say, well, first of all, I don't know if you see what's going on in my shirt here, but,
0: oh, you know,
1: we got a, we have, we, I'm, I'm promoting the carnivore diet just by what I'm wearing, you know? So, you know, I'm going to be doing a project with Sean Baker and, uh, saladino bro i'm forgetting his first name what's his first name paul 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 Saladino. his his last name is highly memorable because it has the word salad in it and the guy probably hasn't had salad in 12
0: years it's like it's, it's like i think it's uh in mexican uh for for salad you know salad Saladino. <laughs> I'm a bad person. I know <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, on a
1: serious note, um, the carnivore diet, ge- my general opinion of the carnivore diet is that people take to it very well when they transition from a, a, a absolute crappy ass standard Western diet where they're over-consuming everything. They're over-consuming mainly you know, crappy sources of carbs and crappy sources of fat and combinations of that and just a butt-ton of uh, ultra-processed, highly refined, hyper-palatable foods that are energy-dense um, and nutrient-sparse and uh, easily overeaten. And so when you transition from the standard Western diet to the carnivore diet, you're losing a crap load of weight. And there's a a multitude of clinical benefits to just the, the, the sole occurrence of just weight loss on its own. However way you do it, whether you do it with just eating chunks of cow flesh, or whether you do it um, eating like (laughs) beans and rice, (laughs) you know, um, the clinical benefits of going from a a state of obesity to a state of normal weight, however, which way you do it, it's going to make you a believer in the program. So when people go carnivore, they end up increasing their protein intake uh, and they end up decreasing their overall caloric intake because they're more satiated. And for the first time, they're seeing weight fly off them. Uh, you're decreasing the variety of foods in the diet and therefore the your options for what to eat. And so it is a, a very effective way to eat less total calories, at least for a temporary period of time. So going carnivore, um, I, I see the appeal of it and I see the effectiveness of it as a... Uh, uh, um, an extreme intervention. Um I, I, I do just looking at the diet paradigms that have been pushed in the mainstream public health literature and seeing the utter failure of of them because the, the general audience doesn't know what to do with the pyramid. You know, the the general audience sees the food guide pyramid and they're like, Oh cool I'll just have a eat low fat pizza and boxes of cereal all day and I'm following the public health guidelines you know that that wasn't <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and so it's it's easy to misinterpret public health guidelines and so the, the the true believers in carnivore have had these highly positive experiences with weight loss and satiety and there's another wrinkle in there where Certain plant foods set off people's uh, autoimmune conditions. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes people are have, have a genuine issue with uh, wheat and its cousins, um, with with gluten, for example. There's um, probably one percent of the population who who has celiac disease, uh, maybe a little less, depending on what what data you look at. Maybe up to five percent of the general population has non-celiac gluten intolerance. And so that's a lot of people, you know, when you kick all the plant foods out, you kick all the freaking grain foods out, you're you're cutting out a lot of hyper palatable foods. You're cutting out a lot of potentially autoimmune offending foods and then people love it. But you know, uh, um, it's the lesser of the two evils ultimately. Carnivore okay. is the lesser of the evils if, it, if it's for a temporary period. And also I'm seeing a lot of people observationally incurring um, scurvy from, from going carnivore with, with no dietary sources of of vitamin C. Mm -hmm. And, and of course you have the utterly crazy carnivore folks who say, oh, I'll just eat raw liver and get my vitamin C from there. So don't you worry. I don't have to eat no damn oranges and whatnot. I'll just eat raw liver. <laughs> okay. All right. Good luck with that, buddy. You know, better you than me. I'll have my, uh, you know, I'll have my steak and I'll have my veggies, you know, uh, and my fruits. But some people are truly out of their minds and, and they're, they're okay with that sort of thing. But it, I, I will give the carnivore diet uh, this benefit. It, it's a good basis for an elimination diet to investigate systematically what plant foods might be offensive to your physiological response. So if if you have some sort of food that you feel is triggering some sort of autoimmune response or some sort of gastrointestinal responses that are unfavorable or adverse, then just use that meat basis and eliminate those foods and then reintroduce the plant foods systematically for um, measured time periods and take note of which foods might be causing you the symptoms and then remove them from the diet and see if that alleviates the symptoms. And then you can systematically find out what plant foods might be messing with you. And so as a basis for an elimination and reintroduction diet, I see the utility of the carnivore diet. What I don't see the utility of is thinking that you're optimizing your long-term health by
0: just eating ribeye. Oh so, yeah so basically you would not encourage uh, anybody to just just you know for fun for shits and giggles to go to go on carnivore and uh, it's not the best way to optimize basically.
1: Yeah. long-term health no. No, okay. you you have mountains of evidence that you have to just shut your eyes to if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
0: I wonder. I mean, you know, a lot of people who are into nutrition, you know, have you ever had this uh, this occasion when when you have seen or observed or a vegan has told you that you know, you know, to help this veganism, I'm, I'm going to go full dark side and start carnivore. <laughs>
1: It's true. It's true that a lot of carnivores are ex-vegans. Wow. <laughs> it's because the people who gravitate towards the carnivore diet gravitate to extremes. They, they just are that type. And I think that um, maybe Jordan Peterson would be able to explain to me the psychology of that. <laughs> um, so, uh,
0: yeah, no, I, I, oh. I do. I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson, by the way. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he would probably, I think there's like what he says, like a dominance hierarchy of uh, different, uh, different, different nutritional aspects, you know, and you know, you have to be at the top of the dominance hierarchy and uh, make sure the lobsters are present and so on. Lobsters are carnivores. Lobsters still still are carnivore, I think. So, so (laughs) he'd be good. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. But uh, uh, we are reaching the the time limit here soon enough as well. So, I, you know, I think I would actually pose you the last question or like the point to, to touch on is uh, the overweight epidemic. Well, yeah. in the United States, but also worldwide. So, so Europe as well. Where I'm reciting, uh, I mean the uh, the obesity epidemic. It's uh, it's starting to show its uh, show its face as well. So, uh, if you tackle the subject a bit in that sense, uh, what do you think? What drives this? Is it poor discipline? Is it some sort of uh, reward mechanisms that people want to experience, uh, perhaps like dopamine-wise and so on, Mm. like super satiating and tasty foods? And what should we do about it? In that sense, I've always uh, liked to think, I I have formulated this idea, and I really like to think that way, that uh, nobody should experience hunger. However, we do have to fight our cravings. What's your comment on that?
1: it's such a complex problem it really really is there's so many facets to what's fueling the uh, obesity pandemic basically uh thankfully uh, obesity rates have seemed to plateaued over the last decade so maybe we're at our high of how bad it's going to get
0: that's in the united states in the u.s yes
1: yes i'm not sure what what the situation is um, where you're
0: at. I, I think we're on a rise. You're still we're on, on a rise. rise because mm-hmm. uh, we have a different background and uh, mm-hmm. and all of that. So I think uh, we have just uh, exited the phase of discovering burgers and fast food. Actually, yeah. you know, I mean, a few years ago, the first KFC opened up here. So <laughs> oh, so
1: man. you guys just you guys are just got on the KFC train. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Just so
0: oh man we're gonna get the hammer soon enough so so wish me luck man oh boy i haven't had that in many years yeah i kind of miss it
1: (laughs) um (laughs) you know it, it the the main facets i see that are fueling the obesity epidemic are the okay it's misinformation the spread of misinformation um by, by quacks with large platforms. Um, just like, for example, um, people who claim that it's not about calories, it's about hormones, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that's utterly false. And, and it's false in, in many in subtle and important ways. You know, that the whole idea that, that people are pointing to magic foods or, or superfoods and then, and then evil foods and telling people to ignore the concept of, of energy balance, that's, that'll get people overweight, you know, ultimately, if you, if you do not know the rules of the game, you're going to lose it. And so energy balance is, is the foundation and hormones are what influence how you behave, which affects energy balance. So, um, And it's tough for people to to understand that when you have best-selling diet books written by folks with not a clue. Um, And so that's that's one of the big problems is the spread of misinformation is going to keep people obese and overweight as long as they have the wrong information. And then the other problem is the uh, lack of scientific literacy in the general audience. So as long as the general audience... Has, has no scientific literacy and they can't distinguish high-quality information from, from, from the crab, then they're always going to be vulnerable to misinformation and they're always going to have weight problems and, and obesity can continue to rise. And when you can combine that with the food environment that is designed to just get people to buy, get people to mm-hmm. consume, um, and then the foods themselves are engineered to be highly palatable and delicious. And, uh, and there's high accessibility. Um, and a lot of times they're cheap and then they're marketed towards, um, vulnerable populations who like, for example, uh, sugar sweetened beverages for, for kids, um, and also engineered foods for adults who are on the go they're overworked, overstressed, and they're using food as either entertainment or medication or, you know, they're using food as, as a, a, a antidote to boredom, then you, you've got a lot of problems. So the, the food environment with highly um, e- easily available, energy-dense, large portions, inexpensive. And then you've got the miseducation by quacks, who are apparently much more charming and better uh, better at capturing the emotions of, of the general audience than we science folks are. And then you have the scientific illiteracy of the general public, and I think those things mix together to result in, in, in an obesity problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, how is that going to be cured? Uh, I don't know. I, I like to fantasize that, Folks like you and me can uh, become famous enough one day to be able to deliver accurate messages to the public that they can actually find practical and put to use. And Mm -hmm. I think it's happening little by little. Um, I I know from just feedback from students and, and younger folks that I've been able to influence at least a couple of generations of fitness practitioners to who care about science mm-hmm. so that's a start but you're I'm looking not, at one uh, yeah oh good <laughs> good 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 and so maybe one day you'll have a platform of a million folks that you'll be able to um you know uh, sp- spread the gospel so to speak um, i appreciate
0: oh, your optimism
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so that that's what i'm hoping for it's mm-hmm. a, it's an uphill battle uh, the the general audience doesn't like to hear about getting enough protein. They like to hear about avoiding carbs um, until they try it. And then it lasts for a few months and they're back to square one. But yeah, uh, I'm optimistic that we can make a small dent and, and maybe change the world a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is more easily, be, more easily changeable. Is it the environment, the food environment that surrounds us? or the actual awareness and the ability to implement discipline into people.
1: I would like to think that education would be the easier thing to do because the food environment... um...
0: For example, they are speaking about implementing sugar tax here or... Having regulations that force the pr- the manufacturers and the producers of food to reduce the uh, uh, the quantity of sugar in, in the products. So, mm-hmm.
1: I think that, that legislation and policy change is a little bit harder battle, mm-hmm. a little bit tougher battle than than uh, changes in in the messages, the public health and uh, messages and the education that we give out as practitioners and as, um, in quotes, influencers, Mm -hmm. you know, I I just want to round up, uh, all the, the science folks with relatively large audiences and, and say, Hey, how can we just, um, carpet bomb Instagram, Facebook, and, uh, and Twitter with, with uh, the science-based information and, and make it. Make it appealing for the general audience.
0: <laughs> you have done a you have done a great job with that. Your infographics and memes that you produce are really cool. I still remember the uh, what was like the protein matrix or 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 something like that, where, where you put the you when where you put Neo on 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 the infographic. <laughs> So, yes, I remember yeah, that. Yes, they're, they're informative and funny, but yeah, I do think that if uh, we are able to raise awareness among people so that people would do different choices when they're at the grocery store, then uh, they are the ones actually who dictate the market as well. Because even mm-hmm. today, you can see much more protein-filled products. For example, you know, we have protein, milk, protein, ice cream, and so on. It's, it's a different mm. thing already. You know, you know, it used to be fat uh, used to be the demon, then it's sugar. Now protein is being praised. Now we have entered the, the, the protein phase where everything's about yeah. protein.
1: Yes. So, yes. So, 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 little changes have happened. Yeah. Um, the, the career path of personal training, um, the, the certification bodies are at least referencing or, and relaying the work of uh, myself and and my research colleagues, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it, it that's where it begins, and that that's where it can spread. And so, hopefully, they will there'll be more butterfly effects like that with practitioners to their clients, to their social media audiences, and. Um, I think that we have made a little bit of progress in the last decade or so to mm-hmm. combat misinformation.
0: So, well, yeah, well, you can sleep in peace knowing that that in my country here, the official, what's that? Uh, the official certification for fitness trainers in the Olympic Committee or in our national Olympic Committee. The nutrition part is has been inspired by Alan Aragon, so so we are using your information, man, to to educate the uh, upcoming trainers here on a national level with the national certification. So you have reached here, man. You have made some impact. So, oh my goodness, yeah. I'm gonna
1: play that back and listen to it like 50 times.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm glad. Well, however, um, it's time to wrap it up probably so just to sum it up uh you you sensed pardon me you sensed
1: that i was uh missing the anabolic window right yeah what is that bcas
0: this is like leucine sprinkled water right here oh so you're 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 traveling into the realm of homeopathy already because if it's only sprinkles there of leucine. oh you know it man
1: it's just serial dilutions until you
0: just have just the essence of of leucine Mm -hmm. in here placebo-induced protein synthesis <laughs> the best kind yeah <laughs> okay man uh thank you so much for this opportunity to to hear you out to learn from you uh i think the listeners will also appreciate the 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 fact that you were on this uh, podcast and uh and yeah i mean can't thank you enough man we'll be following you and looking at what you're doing and trying to trying to absorb that some of the knowledge from uh,
1: i really appreciate the opportunity to be on thank you seems audience all of you out there yeah and yeah <laughs> yeah it's been really fun really great always great um getting questions from a true bro oh and <laughs> and yeah I'll, I'll be happy to get this out there when it's ready to fire off so, so okay yeah. wh- thank you once
0: again seem When I push the end button, I'm going to cry now. So I'm really trying to hold back my tears and joy. (laughs) My man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's wrap this up, man.